Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're having a great one or had a great one or will have a great one. We'll be talking a bit about the labor force today. Daniel Kirsch, Senior Editor of Mass Device, is on the podcast. She just finished up our Bay 100 Medical Design and Outsourcing issue in which she does some deep data diving on the workforce, on R&D spending, on CEO salaries. So we'll talk a lot about that today with Chris Newmarker, of course, Executive Editor of Life Sciences. He is back on the podcast, and I am very excited. If you want to read the episode of, or rather the issue of Medical Design and Outsourcing, we'll put the link in the show notes, but you can, of course, go to medicaldesignandoutsourcing.com to read this issue and also to subscribe to receive future issues. And after that conversation, I'll be speaking with Bertine Nehum. He is CEO of Quantum Surgical. He'll be joining us at Device Talks West, where we'll be talking about the future of surgical robotics. We're looking, yes, at the technology, but also where this cool technology fits into the healthcare settings of the future. We'll have hospital executives on there, others representing the providers. In addition to uh, Bertine Nahum, we'll have Anna Zdwa and Adam Sachs, CEOs of different types of surgical robotics companies. So it's going to be a great conversation. You should totally be there. So go to devicetalks.com to register. Again, it's happening on October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Lots of other great surgical robotics talk as well. Dave Rosa, president of Intuitive Surgical, and much, much more. We'll also be talking about neuromodulation, about diabetes, about vascular, about neurovascular. It goes on and on and on. So uh, totally don't miss this. Go to devicetalks.com to register. If you need some insights right now, like right away, like next Tuesday, you can join us at Device Talks Tuesdays. Register for that. It's free. It's brought to you by Laird, and the title is Unlocking the Future of Medical Connectivity, Harnessing the Power of Wi-Fi 6 slash 6E. This uh, Wi-Fi slash Wi-Fi 6 slash 6E is going to be the backbone of connected health going forward. So if you don't want to be left behind, you might want to join us for this webinar. Again, you can register for that also at devicetalks.com. Device Talks Tuesdays are free. They are fun. They are informative. And uh, I, I love to take questions from the audience. So you should be there. Bring your problems. We'll get you solutions. Laird is great about that. And uh, there's no reason not to join us at Device Talks Tuesdays. All right. So that's it. Great episode coming up. Device Talks West coming up in October. Device Talks Tuesday coming up on Tuesday. Let's get this podcast started. And happy Labor Day, all. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. Good to be back. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. Been a couple of weeks. It's been how busy. are things? Things are going well. You actually, hit the, you hit the fair. Hit up the fair. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Got, got uh, corn or kettle got, corn or I don't know, fried something you know, or other. Got or... some uh, deep fried pickles when we first oh, got in. Look at you, little, little deep fried pickles with some ranch dill ranch dressing. Mm. Wow. Got a little bit of that. Got a little bit of uh, roasted corn. Of course, my uh, 
when I, my uh, five-year-old son was uh, on my shoulders eating an ear of corn. So that was uh, that made things a little greasy. So <laughs> just, uh, he had but, something easy to wipe his hands on. Just, just, just yeah, just yeah. Just, Daddy's hair. That works Dad's well. Hair. Yeah. yeah, it was good times. So. Uh, all right. Well, I'm glad you folks had some nice times at the fair. Uh, we are here to talk about the Big 100, which yeah. coincides with Labor Day. It's Labor Day weekend. Um, yeah. And uh, we've uh, our Big 100 uh, issue of Medical Design and Outsourcing features an exhaustive analysis of uh, of the medtech industry, and of course, as the name indicates, the, the big, the largest 100 companies in medtech. But lots of other cool stuff in it as well. So we brought the the maestro of this uh, of this introspection into uh, to the podcast. We're here with Daniel Kirsch, right. senior editor. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to have you, Daniel. Oh, it was a pleasure to have the voice of Fast Five on uh, on the Device Talks Weekly podcast. So, Danielle, why don't you give us an overview? Give our listeners an overview. Just uh, the big one hundred issue. What is it? And what do you what do you try to accomplish each year when you're sort of uh, assembling it? The Big 100 is a list of the 100 largest companies in the world, as you mentioned. It's kind of a who's who of the medtech companies, who's growing their sales the most, who, what industries are doing the best. Uh, we also compare their research and development spending and their headcounts just to see what the state of the industry is uh, for the most part. Um we like to break it down into biggest orthopedic companies and just kind of narrow down all these analysis from these several data points into, you know, who employs the most people, who spends the most on research, who has the highest revenue and things like that. That's great. And uh, uh, we're not going to read through all 100 companies. Folks can uh, go to medicaldesignandoutsourcing.com to find the issue. Uh, it's available electronically. Um, people can guess. I thought you were gonna, we were going to like sing through it, like do like a Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, Medtronic JJ. <laughs> That's a great idea for next year, Chris. <laughs> we, need, we need a more preparation for that, though, but... You are yeah. on fire. We you might, are an idea, we, man. We might be we might be sued by the estate of uh, Billy Joel, but you know. Uh, well, he's not dead yet, so we true. might be sued by Billy Joel himself. <laughs> sued by Billy Joel. <laughs> Which, you know, it's not a deal breaker. <laughs> if I were to be sued breaker. by anybody, I would love to be sued by Billy Joel. Put that on your LinkedIn page. Like, that's sued by <laughs> Billy Joel. He got me through a lot of stuff in high school, so that's there great. All right. Uh, TM, uh, man's a tearjerker, you know. Like, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> what the heck is a real estate novelist? All right. We don't need to get uh, into anyway, that right yeah, Let's all get right. it. Let's yeah, get it. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so folks should really go to uh, the issue to, to find the, the rankings. There were some surprises, and I love, Daniel, that you added sort of the, the 101 through 105 as well, like those that almost made the list. I think those are almost more interesting than the folks who did make the list, just to see who barely missed. Uh, do, you, do you find a lot of movement? Year to year, I imagine there, there's probably 90 that stay on the list. But at the end of the list, is there some give and some take? Definitely. And that's why I wanted to include 101 to 105 this year. Yeah. Um, pr particularly, in particular, Inspire Medical Systems last year didn't make the list. Mm -hmm. And then this year they broke onto it at number 95. So they weren't at the bottom. They were, they were uh, still relatively within the top 95. So um, 
it's just interesting to see that, especially when it's companies that are doing something really innovative. But also this year, one of the companies was not doing, did not do as many sales as it did last year. So it did drop off the list. So it was something that I kind of wanted to highlight as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're definitely yeah. right. The 101 to 105 is is always interesting. It's the companies to watch out for. I mean, one of them, we, we've we talked about a lot. You've talked to their CEO, um, Outset Medical. So yep. maybe next maybe next year we'll see them in the 100. So it's it's good to watch for these companies. Yeah. Absolutely. No, they're, and they're names that I know. I mean, Glaucos, Axonics, Silk Road Medical, SI Bone. I shouldn't give away this list because it, but it's, it, it, I think, I think it is a great compliment to, to the list itself. But what I think is even cooler is the way you've, you've dug into deeper into the analysis and the data that you've compiled to uh, look at things like R and D spend versus revenue and CEO salaries and, and workforce makeups, workforce makeup. Given that this is Labor Day weekend, it's, it's a timely conversation. Uh, let's talk first about workforce, if you will. Were any changes there that uh, are worth uh, discussing? Yeah, I found that headcount was down nearly 7% year over year as we caught the beginning of the industry's layoffs that we heard about earlier this year. Um, so yeah. it was basically over a little over 60,000 employees were cut from our analysis from last year oh my gosh what was that number again how many number how many people were cut a little over sixty thousand. Sixty thousand. Wow. okay wow. Sixty thousand less fewer workers fewer. yes fewer. wow fewer um yes. how does that compare to years past is it does it does it vary from going up up and down is there a rhythm to it is it uh is it predictable like did you go into this list thinking anticipating there'd be fewer workers in there were. I just am curious, like when you when you saw that number, did you say, wow, that makes sense? Did you say, well, that's more than I thought? And and again, how does that compare to like year to year? Does it go up and down year to year? So this year, it wasn't much of a surprise, especially as we've been seeing many layoffs within the industry. So we kind of anticipated some sort of a loss in headcount this year. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't expecting 7%. I was expecting more 1% to 2%, but mm. I guess that really shows like the the size of the med tech industry and how many people are in it. Yeah. Um, for 60,000 60, people to be lost to make a 7% uh, decrease. But as for uh, year, year to year, last year, there was a 6% uptick in headcount. So... I wouldn't mm. I wouldn't say it's like it's expected, but every year it just depends. I guess it depends. Just like what they say in their annual reports or on their earnings calls. It 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 depends on the economic headwinds. You know, and I would say, I mean, right now, I mean, companies in general are are finding it, you know, more expensive to operate. I mean, you know, inflation seems to be cooling off, but we had a decent amount of inflation over the past year. We have interest rates up to, you know, Get, get that inflation under control that makes it more expensive to get your hands on money uh you know and then you know for the uh, med tech industry like supply chain challenges have been especially tough and and the health provider company you know the health provider customers have uh you know been facing a lot of operational challenges coming out of the covid 19 pandemic so i mean that's all been going on for med tech but i mean it was interesting because i mean before you even did this analysis i mean mass device already had you know reported on you know uh like job cups cuts in the industry around eighteen thousand. so it 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 really does seem you kind of caught 
you know, because a lot of these companies that were measuring in that report were using their most recent annual reports. So it's, a lot of this was 2022, but you're catching, um, a, 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 you know, kind of like the beginnings of all this that, you know, hopefully, knock on wood is, you know, wrapping up now. But, but you know, the, on the flip side, Danielle, I mean, you found, you, you know, okay, so we, I mean, you know, it, unfortunately, I mean, the, the job losses weren't like a super surprise. Um, but um, on the flip side, I mean, you found out something else really interesting um, in the past year, right? Yeah, I mean, even as employment counts at the largest companies are going down, companies seem to be betting on research and development to grow their sales, at least according to my analysis. Yeah, I mean, tell, tell us more about that. So R&D spending for are the 100 companies was up 19.8%. To wow. $26.4 billion year over year. And uh, that's, I can't, one reason behind that could be more, I mean, more focus on innovation. If companies can't acquire smaller companies, this is according yeah. to Andrew J, general partner at uh, Borna Health Fund. He was saying that new products are the life and blood of the medical technology industry, but these new products can also create new markets. They can shift market share. New products can drive market growth, things like that. So it just seems that R&D spending is driving revenue at some of the companies that have grown their sales the most year over year. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I mean, I, I mean, I recall when um, Medtronic, you know, came out with the micro leadless pacemaker. One of the big things about it was like, wow, they actually, this was like a, all hands on deck internal R&D effort that made this. I mean, usually when we're seeing innovations in, in the device industry, it's from smaller companies that get get acquired. So, I mean, it is that 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 seems like that could be a possibility that if it's like uh, if it's harder to acquire smaller companies right now that, you know, the bigger companies, you know, they're doing more R&D and hopefully we'll see some, uh, you know, some uh, more more neat innovations coming from inside the big the big companies because of this. I'm not quite sure why the smaller companies would be harder to acquire, given there's no IPO window. Um, and I'm not sure if that would – it would be interesting to, to to track the next couple of years to see how much how much that, that spend really swings back and forth. I, I think I think it would be – Yeah. Andrew J. knows a lot more about all this than I do. I'm just offering my, 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 yeah. my two-cent opinion. But I just wonder if there's more – I, I, I don't know if there's – I wonder if there's something more driving the increase in in R and D, and it might just be, I don't know, a strengthening of of organizations. It might be the cost of it might be the cost of our of R and D. It might just be that things are more expensive than they were before um, in terms of services and materials. I know one of the big things. I mean, just just listening to all these earnings calls. I mean, I'm hearing a lot more CEOs saying like we're boosting R and D, yeah. and even Medtronic. You know, is I mean. You know, is saying like that in recent years they've you know boosted their their internal R and D spending. So even though yeah, there's challenges they're working through over there, they're definitely you know trying to you know cut some costs operationally. They're saying, hey, but we're hiring engineers, we're hiring R and D here to you know get you know build some innovations for for future growth. So yeah. and to amplify Andrew's point, maybe maybe it's as much. Maybe it's as much that there are fewer companies being developed with really interesting technologies, so big companies feel the need to to augment their own R and D to offset any shortage of, of startups. It's the the finance the 
the financial numbers, if you look at numbers of dollars going into privately held companies, they're they're still strong. But uh, on a whole, maybe there's a maybe there's a feeling that the big companies need to to be more be, be bigger players in R and D. So, I mean, they're definitely strong, but. I mean, one of the themes I'm hearing a lot in the earnings calls is the analysts. The analysts are saying, "But we want more. We want like really, you know." There's kind of this sense there was really robust growth, you know, before the pandemic, and you know, there's kind of like I mean, there's been a lot of earnings calls where it's been like, I mean, we were talking about that a few weeks ago. Like, like they they're kind of picky right now. There's a lot of pickiness. Like, it's like, oh, we're we're going to grow eight percent this year. Like, well, why not twelve? You know, like so. yeah. yeah. It's also interesting. I wonder if more if new devices are just more expensive to to develop. Where you need to have connected health, you need to have cybersecurity, you need to have all these other elements to it that perhaps weren't part of it before. So we're now supply chain definitely. Yeah, I mean, just you know, overall that, that cost. Yeah. Costs. So, yeah, interesting. We're throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall, but that's why issues like this are so great. It just kind of. And what's really cool about that issue too is like so. I mean, on top of the analysis that Daniel had for us here, I mean, you. Uh, you created, I mean, there's a chart of, you know, the largest R&D spenders. And I mean, that's kind of, it's like, oh yeah, of course, Medtronic's at the top. And, you know, but but there's another chart that's, uh, you know, that's uh, R&D. What, what was it? It's Daniel, it's R&D as spending. Ranking as a by percentage. It's R&D ranking yeah. by percentage of revenue. That's right. And uh, and that, if you go to, uh, to medical design outsourcing and, uh, you know, click on MDO digital editions on the, the right right side, you can go look at our September issue here. It's also on the homepage slider right now and, uh, you know, and, and get in there and check out that chart for now. Um, I mean, I think we're planning to have more coverage based on that chart later this month. So keep an eye out, but um, I mean, but it's uh, yeah, it's quite a list and the companies that are at the top, I mean, these are, I think these are companies that get us excited that, that you know, that we're like, wow, they're, they're doing some really uh, interesting stuff, which, would make sense since they uh, they're spending a, a good chunk of their uh, revenue on R and D. Danielle, just to to, to uh, put this up front, the, the source of all this material you're going through SEC documents. That's where you're getting this data. That's yeah. correct. SEC documents and for the foreign companies, their annual reports that are on their websites. Wow, that sounds like fun. <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> and and the last piece that, that I think is going to spark a lot of conversation, I'm sure already has, uh, is your CEO salary survey. Uh, talk a bit about that. Have you done this one before? And, and what what do you uh, what are the what's the rationale behind putting this this data together? I have not done I have not done a CEO compensation story before, but uh, our colleague Jim Hammeran has been doing a lot of say on pay stories on medical design and outsourcing. So he had been keeping track of stock or stakeholder conversations about whether CEOs should be compensated the way they are being compensated. And uh, so I just kind of wanted to do a full analysis of how much CEOs are paid versus how much the workers yeah. are paid and figure out what the pay ratio is for those. Well, I didn't have to figure it out. The companies disclose mm-hmm. them publicly with the SEC. So no math involved on my end. It's all there. That's math. always helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool that I mean, you're able to do this because what like the the SEC only started requiring this in recent years that you you had to you right. know, like just yeah exactly like the CEO compensation versus you know what your median worker your person on the middle of the of the chart made you know um, yeah, it's it's I mean what are some of the big 
insights. Yeah, what are what are some that. of the outliers? We don't want to give away the whole list, but uh, I think my, if I may, just offer mine, and it might be the same as yours. Adam Elsesser of Penumbra had a, a surprisingly low salary. Definitely, he is the lowest on the list. I know we didn't want to spoil anything, but he <laughs> he is the lowest on the list. He's he makes he has chosen to take less than a million dollars in salary. Um, so the pay ratio is even it's less than ten to one. Mm-hmm. But Penumbra characterized his pay package as below market because Adam himself said that he expressed a preference to the compensation committee that his cash compensation be modest so that Penumbra could invest in other areas of the business. So he would much rather take a smaller paycheck if the company can continue to innovate, as we discussed before, in R&D, things like that. So, um, That's pretty remarkable. There's yeah. that. And you're right. We don't yeah. want to spoil anything, but, you know, you want to call, you want to, you want to give someone credit. I think that's a... It's a unique perspective from from Adam Elsesser. On the flip, on the flip side, the CEO at the top of the list uh, with that ratio, who I I won't disclose. You got to check out the article, but um, I mean, he made more than a thousand times more than the uh, the mini employee at the at the company being led. I mean, so wow, that's uh, that's that's quite a ratio. And you would think that Medtronic, the largest medical device company in the world, maybe their CEO would be the top paid CEO out of all of the 100 companies that we keep track of, but he is not. And that's also something that you could go and discover and see who who actually is the top paid CEO. Yep. No, I think, I think it's go. good to leave a, a little bit of surprise. And again, I don't think we're we're making any judgment or, or casting aspersions or anything like that on any company no. or, or executive Um but it's an interesting comparison to see, you know, how, how folks, how, how the leaders of these companies are being compensated. And I think if you're one of these employees at these companies, it, it's interesting for you to know where your CEO ranks compared to others and sort of where they're, where the priorities are for executive yeah. management compensation. I definitely, yeah, I definitely don't want to pick on MedTech. I mean, this is something you see across corporate America. I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, a top executive at a publicly traded company um, in in America, like uh, executives make a lot more money than the the rank and file workers, and you know, but um, yeah, definitely, uh, I think this is. I mean, if I was working at inside one of the medical device companies, I'd be interested to go through this and you know see, you know, like how much how much you know does the you know, top executive of our company make, you know, versus, you know, what, what I'm, what I'm getting on the, on the paycheck. So excellent. All right. Well, and everyone can check this out on MDO at under the uh, headline, uh, untangling medtech CEO pay ratios. Absolutely. And, and in, sorry, Tom. And in that article, you can sort the table by total pay, CEO pay. You can sort it by median pay, pay ratio, company revenue, headcount. So whatever you want to see, who you know, who employs the most employees, what does their CEO make? That you can you can dictate however you want it to be sorted. I loved how you had a chart on here too, like with bubbles, like so you could kind of uh, you know see see the size of the pay versus you know the. Uh, you know, the, the revenue that was, that was, uh, that was really cool. All right. Well, so we'll, I think we've shared enough details of, of this issue. It's really fascinating reading. And as Daniel said online, there's a lot of great ways to sort the data. And I think that's always most valuable, but Chris, how, how can folks get, let's just be crystal clear. We'll put a link in, in the show notes as well, but how can folks get this issue and future issues of metal design and outsourcing? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're, yeah, I mean, if you're not getting the print edition, you know, you're missing out on having something you can have on your desk like this every, every September. That's a really good reference resource. Um, you know, you just go to medicaldesignandoutsourcing.com. You go to the bottom of the homepage and then there's a subscribe to the print magazine and, uh, yes, yeah, subscribe, like, uh, like get, get that print edition. I mean, on top of the big 100, we've, you know, got our, uh, you know, women and, and med tech, uh, issue coming up in october that's another like really really big project that uh you know danielle uh you know like manages that's just like fantastic for us and then we have our actually our medical device handbook is coming out in november and then i would just add like you know all this big 100 content you can find this by just going to the medical design outsourcing.com homepage and you know right right there near the top there's a big you know 2023 big 100 box that you can you can uh click on and that'll uh you know show you a few uh you know the full uh we'll have access to the uh you know the, the full report and you know all the articles that we've been uh producing around it and if you you know want to like you know kind of like just read like a digital print edition version of this uh you can like scroll just down a little bit and uh click on back issues for mdo digital edition and you know like and and click through a pdf of uh our september issue as well all right. So lot, lots of ways to find this information. And Danielle, you're, you're no rest for you. As Chris uh, indicated, you're working now on the uh, the upcoming women in medtech issue. That's yeah. correct. Hard, hard at work on on women in medtech. But I also did want to point out that, you know, all, all of us are doing a really good job of sharing big 100 content on our LinkedIn. Tom, you've been really gracious in sharing some That's of the content stuff. or resharing <laughs> some of the data analysis is and data analysis that I have done. So that's also a good way to uh, to find to find some of the, the the work that we've been doing. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And we'll get into uh, where you can follow us on social media uh, right after this uh, right after this interview. So Danielle, thanks for uh, for sharing uh, your the insights on on the Big One Hundred, and thanks of course for for putting all this together. It's a great service for the medtech industry. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. That was awesome. Well, Bertine Nahum, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to learn about the uh, quantum surgical story, but you've got a long history in, in surgical robotics with uh, MedTech SA that I want to get into as well. But first, let's find your very start. Your LinkedIn profile doesn't tell me what your first job in MedTech was. Was your first entry into MedTech, MedTech SA through robotics or, or were you in the MedTech industry prior to that? Yeah, so if I go a little bit uh, even longer uh, back in the days, I am an engineer by training. Okay. I'm an engineer. I was I graduated from a school of engineers uh, in France and also in the UK, Coventry. I got a master of science in, in robotics. And I actually started my career directly in a company that was active, that was pioneering medical robotics. Ah. That was in the mid-90s, and that was in a, in a small city in France, Grenoble. So time, you know, Grenoble was known for being very, you know, uh, pioneering all those robot-assisted, or shall I say, computer-assisted solutions for for surgical and medical application. So this is where I started my my career. I started as an R&D engineer, uh, doing mostly software development, and I did that uh, for a couple of years before I transitioned to a more, uh, you know, post a position close from the from the field. I was uh, basically helping the, the physicians and their teams using technologies uh, during uh, uh, you know during their intervention. 
What was the uh, opportunity that you saw for robotics as part of a surgical solution? Obviously, it wasn't broadly accepted at the time. A few visionaries saw it, yourself included, it appears. What opportunity did you see there? So again, I am an engineer by training, as I said, and ended up being in the field of medical applications by mistake, shall I say, because you know I was not basically trained to do that. And that was at the occasion of at the time, uh, the training that I did uh, at the end of my studies, a student project that was about designing, developing a solution, I, an intelligent artificial solution for you know decision in brain tumors. And this is when I basically discover how technology could be used to help physicians, uh, you know, treating a better, in a better way the patients. So that's when um, I decided that I wanted to basically, uh, you know, work in the field of medical uh, industry, in the medical industry. And that's by mistake that I, I ended up starting in, in robotics. And I think that the fact that I was uh, dealing with uh, physicians surgeon and their team on a day-to-day basis in my second position as a field engineer, I think this was very instructive because I could see all the challenges the physicians and their team are facing on the day-to-day basis and how technology could help them better solving some of the issues that they are, they are, they are meeting. How do you, I mean, at the time you may have seen it, but I don't think the surgeons themselves Sorry, I don't think, I don't recall any surgeon saying, you know, what we really need, we really need some sort of technology to help me do what I'm currently doing. What is it uh, that you, as an engineer, how do you sort of see that opportunity, see that need, even though when those people who are performing the duties don't see it? How do you convince yourself that it's there? And later on, I guess, how do you convince others that they need the assistance as well? I think that that's a very important point that you're raising. And I think this comes back to the question of why using robots anyway. And I think that uh, there was a, a big mistake uh, at the beginning, and it is still done, that people are trying to replicate the benefits of robotics in industry to the medical field. Hmm. But that's not the same thing. Robots in industry are used basically to improve the productivity to be able to, uh, you know, do more, uh, you know, treat more, uh, do a more productive, uh, you know, solution or something like that. That's not the case in the medical field. So to, to answer your question, quite rapidly, I came to the conclusion that what robots are good at is to help physicians performing high-value procedures for patients that is otherwise very difficult to perform. That's the reason why, at the date of today, most robots are tackling so-called minimally invasive procedures. Because it has been proven, and that's undisputed, the fact that when you are capable of performing a procedure in a minimally invasive way, the patient benefits are undisputable as compared to an open procedure. However, when you are in a minimal invasive scene, everything becomes much more challenging. First of all, the vision is no longer there, the dexterity is not there, and so on. So this is where technology, and more specifically robotics, has a huge role to help physicians performing those procedures in a minimal invasive way 
while still keeping the same level of performance. Hmm. So what was the opportunity that you saw or the necessity that you saw that led to your, you were, you were a founder or a co-founder of MedTech SA? I was a founder. I was founder. a founder. So before, before I actually, uh, you know, uh, founded uh, MedTech SA, that was in the early 2000s, I had nearly five to six years of experience as an, as an employee in different companies, active or shall, shall I say pioneering surgical robotics. And I think I was very lucky because basically I had experience, I had the opportunity to see most of the surgical specialties that at the time were concerned by, by robotics. I started in brain surgery, then moved to hip surgery, then laparoscopic surgery, uh, you know, soft tissues. So I saw all the first possibilities that were that were created. And this is when I started to have ideas on the very first project that I decided to, to uh, you know, to, to tackle with uh, MetekSA when I founded the company in early 2000 was minimal invasive knee surgery. So we designed this robot called Bridget that was used to help orthopedic surgeon placing a knee implant in a minimal invasive way. Hmm. The company was very small. We have a very small team, four or five people. We designed the robot from A to Z. We received C marking for the technology. We also received FD approval at the time. And quite rapidly, uh, at the time, Zimmer uh, came to us one day and said, hey, we've heard what you're doing. We'd like to know more about what you're doing. Uh, you know, basically those discussions ended up uh, with the fact that Zimmer made an offer to first buy the company. And I said, yeah, you know, I talked to my colleagues at the time. None of us really wanted to, you know, move and work for a big company. So we said, uh, we went back to Zimmer and we said, you know what, instead of selling the company, why don't we just sell you all the, the patent portfolio, all the technology, and we stay a company, with another project, Obviously, no competition with what we just sold to you. And let's do it this way. And they say, yeah, let's do that. So that's 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 when so we, we took the money. That's interesting. <laughs> Basically, that was not a big money at the time. But, you know, for us, that, that was uh, important. That was quite important. And at the money, we, we could reinvest in the company and start the new project that was now transitioning to brain surgery with a solution called Rosa for minimally, minimally invasive brain surgery. So what was the time frame of that, uh, of that transaction? Yep. So 2002, I created the company. Yep. 2005, they came and we started to, to discuss. 2006, the, the deal was done. So 2002, oh. 2006, four years. And uh, from 2006, we started this uh, new robot on in Rosa and 2008, the robot was designed. We started to market the device. We received, obviously, C marking, FD approval. We started to sell the, the device in Europe, in France, in Europe. Then in the US, in the early 2010, this is when, already at the time, I made the decision to move to the US, uh, personally, to look after all the startup activities. So I... I and then I created a, a, a branch in, in New York, New York City, and we started to, you know, sell more and more systems uh, in the U.S. In 2013, the company got public. 
in Paris, Paris Euronext, 2013, selling more and more systems. And in 2016, Zimmer Biomet this time, because in the, in the meantime, Zimmer, That's uh, right. yeah, they, they actually merged with, uh, with Biomet to become Zimmer Biomet. So this time, Zimmer Biomet came back to us and this time made an offer to, to buy the company that was public. That's fascinating. I guess I, we always, or I always bring up Stryker's acquisition of Mako as kind of like the first real big bet on, obviously it was a full acquisition. It was over a billion dollars. It was a big bet. But the Zimmer relationship with MedTech SA predates that by a long, long time. And that was really sort of the first, I think, big company entree into surgical robotics. Is that, does that ring true to you? I wouldn't say. I, I Maybe say, not the first. No, I mean, I mean, for, for Zimmer Biomet, I think it was more like a defensive move. You know, yeah. what was happening is they could see that all their major competitors, Stryker, Johnson & Johnson, they were all acquiring uh, robotics and they could see that basically that was the way forward. Yeah. So at, at some stage, they just realized that if they, they did not acquire quite rapidly, uh, you know, a company, then they would uh, they would have some issues. Right, but Zimmer itself, to ten years earlier, made a really early bet oh, in yeah, robotics yeah. that that I don't think really gets uh, acknowledged, at least not by me. Yeah, you're right. No, you're yeah. right. I mean, the the only thing that uh, maybe the, the the mistake they did, if I could, if I if I may, is they I think they they pretty much underestimated what it took basically to introduce and develop such a robotic market. So basically, they thought that just buying you know the the the, the technology then they will be able to, to deal with it. But I think for them, for a company like that, that was too early. Today, it's not the same game because robotics is much more spread, developed. So for a big player to enter this, uh, this, uh, this market, that's not an issue. But remember, we are talking about the early 2000. Yep. The robotics market was not what it was today. That was still a very early stage kind of story that needs some approaches that are very including in terms of risks that you are taking that is not really compatible with a company like Zimmer. They were, they, were, they were not willing to take the risks uh, that were inherent to uh, such a story at uh, such an early stage. That's fascinating. Well, you were with Zimmer for a very short time and then it looks as if you started Quantum the next year. Can you talk about that transition a bit? Did you know you had another idea for another surgical, uh, another robotics approach to a different disease state? So first of all, I, I, I had, and I still have great relationships with Zinovavet. So from A to Z on, until today, we always had a very good relationship. Also from the beginning, I think they knew, and I knew that, you know, that's not my DNA, you know, basically right. to, to, to become. But I was prepared basically to say, yeah, why not spending maybe one year, two years, just to know, to, to discover the test of being in a big group. I know that I'm not going to stay, and they knew that I was not going to stay anyway. But, you know, they were expecting me to stay maybe one year or two years. But in fact, you know, quite rapidly, I, I, I just realized that that's not for me. What I like, I, I am a pioneer. What I like to do is pioneering, you know, new ideas, uh, new markets, and so on. I don't think I, I really have the skills for what it takes after that. You know, quite rapidly, I came to the conclusion that that was maybe not for me. So the basic deal was, uh, uh, I think the company was completely acquired in September 2016. And by November, I had already given my, my, my resignation. 
So I went to I went to see Fernand, which at the time was my number two uh, general manager, and I said, you know, Fernand, I think I, I just I will go. And he said, oh, if you're going, I'm going too. And we went to see uh, Lucien, uh, that was also uh, you know that we've been working together for quite a long time. He's the CTO, and uh, same thing. Lucien said, oh, you know, if you guys go, I go too. So so just went to Zino and he said, sorry, we, we are going. And I think they've been very, uh, very positive. They say, okay, fine, I, I can understand, that's okay. The only thing we're going to ask you is that, okay, let's agree on the kind of a consulting agreement. And for a year, if at any time we are facing such or such issue, you come back to us and you help us solving those issues. Say, yeah, yeah, that's fine, let's do that. And, and in, uh, so in January 2017, we started Quantum Surgical. So to answer the question that you asked before, when we created Quantum Surgical, we had no idea on what we wanted to do. We just took the time to basically come back with all the discussion we had in the past, for the past almost 15 years now. So many uh, physicians from different specialties coming to us and say, oh, you know, why don't you do a robot for this or that? And often we had to turn down basically their their proposal because we say, yeah, we are focused on our current story. But, you know, we came back, we took all those stories, keeping in mind the what we believe as being uh, the winning equation for medical robotics, which is, again, robotics is not here, basically, for better productivity. It is to help a physicians to perform one treatment, if possible, undisputed treatment. What I mean to say is, this is not our job to reinvent the way you treat patients. You can do that, but this takes much more time, therefore much more money. We try to avoid that kind of thing. We only focus on treatment which benefits are completely accepted by the whole medical community, but for a reason, this treatment is not widely used. And often it's because it's a minimally invasive treatment which requires skills, experience, knowledge that only a limited number of physicians manage so that they can do this treatment. So we try to look on all the potential applications, different fields, where we, we, we found these uh, applications, these, uh, these, uh, these criteria, including obviously an economic parameter to that. We obviously want to be on a big market where there's a huge demand. And this, this is how we ended up focusing on oncology and more specifically in the field of uh, liver cancer. That was the first uh, application. So no need to say that unfortunately cancer is a, is a, is a huge uh, you know, disease, uh, more and more patients, uh, you know, treatment, you know, all the figures show that in the coming years, uh, patients with cancer are going to be more and more uh, numerous. For patients being diagnosed, diagnosed with a, a liver tumor, the conventional treatment is surgery. It consists in opening, basically, you know, abdominal, opening the, the, the abdominal barrier, and then basically removing the part of the liver where the tumor, the lesion is. 
This is obviously very efficient. This is made possible by the fact that the liver is an organ that regenerates contact. However, that's a very heavy treatment that is not always possible because sometimes, depending on the position of the lesion, depending on the fact that there might be multiple lesions, that kind of treatment is not possible. On top of that, or beside this, almost 20 years ago, physicians designed, developed this treatment, this minimal invasive treatment called percutaneous ablation. The treatment is very simple. It consists in introducing a needle percutaneously through the skin. You have to uh, basically target your lesion. This needle is linked to a generator, which is going to deliver some kind of energy, hot, cold, whatever, in such a way that the needle is going to burn locally the tumor. So this treatment is very efficient. It is available and possible also to treat multiple lesions in the case of metastasis, for example. It is a, a treatment which is minimal invasive. In some cases, it can also be performed in an on, how do you call that? On the basis of an, uh, um, I'm looking for the word, you know, when the patient comes in and just go, goes back and leaves the, the hospital the same day. On uh, uh, day surgery, yeah, day surgery, that's a yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, very, very powerful. However, one can really understand well, can easily understand that introducing a needle through the skin to target a tumor that could be few millimeters diameter on one organ which is moving with a patient that is breathing is very challenging and only a very limited patient number of physicians therefore patients can really benefit from those the, the kind of treatment we, that's interesting we estimate that less than 20 percent of eligible patients benefit from this minimal invasive treatment so then again we've got the equation this is where robotics assistance and robotics comes to help physicians performing this high-value minimum invasive treatment thanks to the robotic assistance. I was wondering about that because if you, you have the video, the demo video on your website. And is the system, is it Epion? Epion. 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 That's a good S. That's a good S. I mean, if you look at the video, it looks like you're just inserting the, uh, the, the needle into the liver. And I'm watching this kind of wondering, understanding that there must be a reason or a need for the surgical robotics, but it looks like a simple procedure. So what is, you, you kind of hit upon a little bit, what, what, what is so complicated about that? How does it be on compensate for those, for those challenges? So basically there is a whole protocol uh, that uh, at the end of the day, many uh, enables the technology to compensate for all the motions, deformation that we, we said before. When you don't have that kind of assistance, again, you are performing this treatment in a blind way. What I mean to say is, you know, for the, for the uh, physician, he or she is going to introduce the needle. There are obviously some kind of intraoperative imaging control, but still they are not so, uh, you know, precise. 
deliver the energy, hoping that you, the tumor is actually burned. And it is important to, to burn the, the whole, the entire tumor, because if there are only a few cancer cells remaining, start again. And because you are completely blind, you have to wait a few weeks or months to know if the treatment was efficient or not. Interesting. So that's the reason why many physicians will not even, you know, take the risk of treat of uh, trying this, this treatment. So again, that's what we are doing right now, and the result we have are very very encouraging. Is we make this whole process much easier as you you understand it. The, the physician is going to plan the procedure virtually on the pre-operative images, seeing the lesion, planning where exactly the uh, uh, electrode should be introduced, which path. The physician can also define how what kind of, of, of energy, what kind of power is going to be delivered to completely cover the size of the tumor. Mm-hmm. And then during the procedure, the robot is going to position a guide and the physician just have to introduce the needle through this guide with the knowing that at the end of the day, the electrode will be exactly at the same base. So this is, this is a, you know, very powerful and helps physicians performing in a much more steady and reliable way at this, uh, this kind of procedure, uh, of procedure. So, and I'm looking at the system now uh, and again, watching the video. So it, there's three components on, on wheels. One of them has a robotic arm on it. The other has uh, a monitor. And the, the third, I don't know if it's some sort of kind of imaging camera system that would go over, over the, the camera. Camera. That's the camera that basically, so three components, as you said, the robot itself, obviously. Yep. So for the planning, you know, that the interface and where the, physician is going to plan, define what he or she wants to do. And at last, we've got this last component, which is like, a, that's a camera that gives the information to the robot where the patient is as compared to the robot, the tools, and so on. And then you mentioned the guide. That was the, the plastic, the, or I don't know what it's made, the ring that was placed on the patient's body. Oh, now, this ring is actually used. That's, so, so basically, it's, we are in so-called image-guided procedures. Okay. So this ring is used to know where is the patient with reference to uh, the robot. Okay. The guide is what is at the tip of the robot. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And this is where the, 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 the needle is. So is Epion going to be used with any sort of uh, ablative tool or do you provide the tools as well? Okay, so that's another very interesting idea. Our strategy has always to stay open to existing devices on the on the market. So Interesting. To, to, to answer your question, we are agnostic to the type of needle which is being used. In other words, we are compatible with all the electrodes existing on the market today. Because right now, basically, we want we don't want to slow down the adoption. If a physician wants to see, to use that kind of needle, we are not going to change his habits and say, no, you're not going to use this needle anymore. Now you're going to use such kind of needle. So for the physician, they keep the needle that they are going to, they, they want to use. 
and they basically can use any kind of needle. Interesting. So does this reflect sort of a, a different approach to surgical robotics where you are sort of more of an open system? And I'm, and I'm, I'm guessing Rosa has its own tools. And is this a system that's more, in addition to going after cancer, which is a new area, is also just a, a different type of architecture, maybe a smaller profiles designed to fit into more ASCs or, or smaller ORs. Do you, do you see this as sort of a, a new iteration? I don't want to say generation, but a new approach to surgical robotics, or is it merely a redo of what you did with Rosa, but just in a different disease state? That's a new thing. We are, I think you can safely say, as we've always been, we are pioneers, okay? Remember, we designed a first robot for knee surgery in the early 2000s. Then we did spine, brain, uh, and so on. Today, what we are doing is we are transitioning the concept of image-guided robotic intervention, soft tissues. Let me explain. Basically, until today, there are mainly two big families of robots. There are many ways you can rank the robot, but I like to keep it simple and say there are two big families. There is on one side all the so-called image-guided robots, Mako, Rosa, Mazor, Emit, uh, Blue Belt, whatever. In all those concepts, the, 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 the paradigm is the same. You plan the procedures virtually on pre-operative images, and the robot is here to help you perform exactly what was planned. On the other hand, you have robots that mainly, so just to finish with this first category, in this first category, it is until now, until today, mostly, or shall I say, it's only heart tissues, hip, knee, bones, brain. Brain is considered as being heart tissues because the brain is encapsulated into the, the, you know, the skull. So no, for a very simple reason is that when you plan, between the time when you plan on images and when you perform the procedure, you cannot afford to have the whole scene moving, changing. So this concept of image-guided robotic can only work on heart tissues. Okay. So again, uh, hip, knee, spine. And then the other categories is soft tissues. And now you are no longer in the concept of image guided. It's not to reproduce what was planned. It's about bringing additional optimal dexterity on a very you know, confined environment to a physician, which otherwise would have a lot of difficulties to do, to perform the, the gesture he or she usually does. This is what obviously Da Vinci does and all the Me Too Da Vinci that tries to do the same thing. So we are not in the image guided. There are no pre-operative images. What this technology brings is only additional dexterity. We are the first one to transition the image-guided concept to soft tissues. Interesting. 
So we are pioneering. So I think, if I may, that could be a revolution because if now we are capable, we, we, we see today how robotics are spread into knee surgery, spine, and so on. Now, knee, most knees are done with robots today. You know? If we are capable of showing that we can use the same concept to the soft tissues, then it's a huge avenue that we are, we are opening. Because one can easily understand that there are plenty of applications in soft tissues where you have images, you want to plan something, but then when the patient comes on the table and you open and everything changes, and you know, and at the end of the day, you don't do exactly what you wanted to do because things have changed. So if you can, you know, basically try to copy this concept to soft tissues, then uh, there's, there's, a, there's a huge avenue, especially that's what we are doing. Okay. So let's talk about that opportunity wrap up with just where you are. You've recently received FDA approval this year. You had a 510K clearance earlier. Was this the big one you needed or were you are, what's your status commercialization wise and what is your plan for okay, rolling so, out? So we are, we are a commercial stage company. Uh, mm. We already have a sold system in Europe, in France mainly. Recently started to market our device in the US. We have uh, one already user uh, in Miami. That's one of the reasons why we are here, uh, Baptist Hospital that uh, with Dr. Raj. And we are in the process of opening new hospitals in, uh, 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 so that will be announced in the coming, in the coming weeks or so. Stand forward is actually the next one. So we are really in this stage where we are accelerating the adoption of, uh, you know, our technology. Again, the feedback are very, very encouraging. Uh, you know, uh, Professor Raj, who is the first user of EPN in the US, is a very renowned physician uh, for uh, international radiologists uh, for liver uh, applications. And he recently recorded a, a, a podcast where he explained what the technology is bringing already to, to him. And all of this, you know, makes us very confident I'm very optimistic for what comes next. So is there an extra bit of convincing you need to do for hospitals? If, you, if you're bringing sort of a new approach to surgical robotics, and they may be in a mind where they think, look, we have two categories of surgical robotics. We, need, we have one of those systems. We have one of those systems. We're all set. We don't need a third middle system. Is there, is there some convincing that needs to be done for a revolutionary platform? No, quite frankly, uh, you know, when we present our technology on, on shows and so on, you know, people get it, you know, they, they, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. But, you know, remember, we are in the medical field. What people need is not only idea, it's not only concept, it's data. Where we are right now is building data. You always have the champions who have the vision who are capable of basically transitioning, adopting something, because they anticipate what are going, going to be the benefit. But this is not the conventional medical mind. The conventional medical mind is based on data, publications. Show me the publication. Show me the result. Oh, yes, OK, the results are what you say. That's fine. Let's go. So that's where we are. We are building, basically, you know, those, those, those data with the first uh, users of the of the system, 
And this is how we will convince more and more, uh, you know, physicians, hopefully, of, uh, of the benefits of uh, our technology. Great. And, la- and last question, economics, price. How do you price a system like this? Is it, is it mean, in the same? We are still in a situation where we have completely defined what will be, uh, you know, on the, on the long run, the, the price of what. Basically, right now, the price for a robot is around $1 million, you know, in the mind of everybody, you know, a robot is $1 We may, in some situation, we are making some effort because for the very early uh, users, we have already sold system, you know, uh, at different prices, depending on how early uh, and, and the kind of collaboration we can have with the, with the, with the hospital. But basically, we've got $1 million. Fascinating. All right. Well, this is uh, a great story. Thank you for uh, for sharing it on the podcast and uh, look forward to following Epion's launch in the US. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Uh, Danielle Kirsch, uh, first remind folks that uh, this ain't the only podcast in town. What, uh, what are you and Sean Hooley up to? Yeah, me and Sean are hosting the Mass Device Fast Five MedTech News Daily Podcast, where we bring you the top five stories that you should know for the day in a quick format, less than, most of the time it's less than 10 minutes. Sometimes we have to go 11 (laughs) if it's a big story, but you can find us over there, the Mass Device Fast Five, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's great. So walk the dog, do the dishes, fold the laundry. Hit the treadmill. Well, 10 minutes on the treadmill probably isn't very much, but I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah. yeah. I think we're more of a treadmill kind of podcast. Yeah. Fast five is more walk the dog. Drive. Yeah, walk the dog. Drive to work if you have a very short commute, I suppose. 10 minutes would be a great commute. But uh, all right. Well, and folks can also uh, find that on any major podcast application. They can subscribe to Fast Five or Danielle, you, po- you share it every day on your social media. So where can folks find you on social media? I'm on LinkedIn at Danielle Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H. But also, I know Sean wasn't here. He also posts, po- he also posted every day on his LinkedIn at Sean Hooley, S-E-A-N-W-H-O-O-L-E-Y. All right. And Chris Newmarker, Fantastic. where can uh, I know you and I always like that content when we see it. So folks will get it if they're following us as well. So where can Absolutely. folks find you on social media? I'm, I'm an avid Fast Five reshare, and you can find me at Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. All right. And I am Tom Salemi, of course, S-A-L-E-M-I. Uh, so follow us there. Please do. What do we want folks to do with this podcast, Chris? You got to like, follow, subscribe. That's right. Like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. You'll get Device Talks Weekly, Avid Talks, Boston Scientific Talks, Intuitive Talks, Striker Talks, and we've got uh, some other talks coming out. That's going to blow your mind. So uh, make sure you're uh, you're liking and following on any major podcast application. And of course, please share any and all of these episodes on your social media channels. Uh, don't forget to join us on October 18th and 19th at Device Talks West. And have a lot of good. Got to be there or be square. Absolutely. It's going to be a great couple of days. The agenda is roaring. We've got the marketing rolling out. Numbers looking great. And we definitely want to have you there. And uh, Device Talks Tuesdays uh, back in action. So join us on Tuesday. We'll have a great presentation brought to you by Laird. So you can find all of this at devicetalks.com, uh, except for Fast Five, which we probably should put that up there. But you should subscribe to Fast Five yeah. anyway. So absolutely. All right. Well, Daniel Kirsch, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Chris Newmarker, great to have you back.
it's been it's great to be back and everyone take care enjoy the end of the summer 